Welcome to the Legally Sound Smart Business Show, your weekly look at legal news and questions in the business world. Here are your hosts, Nasser Pasha and Matt Stahl. All right, welcome to Legally Sound Smart Business. This is Nasser Pasha. And this is Matt Stobb. And thank you for joining us. This is our business legal podcast where we cover business in the news and also answer some of your business legal questions that you, the listener, can submit to ask at LegallySoundSmartBusiness.com. And here we go, midweek. I wonder if U.S. won their game yesterday. I predict not, unfortunately, but oh, I hope they Wow. Do. What a terrible way to start off the episode. <laughs> I know it's a doubter, but well, yeah. hopefully I'm just proven wrong. Yeah, I hope so. Man, our audience is going to stop listening too. Unless we have a, <laughs> a lot of audience listeners in, uh, in Belgium, but yeah, the, they'll be depressed and won't want to listen to our show. But that's fine. I think our show is uplifting. So yeah, but anyway, I think we have a good topic today. Because we have franchise owners as clients, and we cover franchises all the time in our podcast, and we get questions like this. But today, we actually brought in a franchise owner, Michael Davis. He's the owner of a Cartridge World franchise in Atlanta, Georgia. Michael, welcome to the program. Thank you, gentlemen. Glad to be here. Yeah, absolutely. You know, we've talked about in the past how other franchise owners can have an effect on the franchise itself. It comes with the good and the bad, right? I mean, there's there was this one case we covered in uh, New York where there was a Domino's franchisee who stupidly fired all his employees for an illegal reason and, of course, had to bring them back and so forth. But those kind of things can have a negative effect. But at the same time, sure, successes also have a positive effect as well. So, Michael, why don't you tell us a little bit about the franchise world in general and this little kind of secret family that I think a lot of people aren't aware of? Sure. Again, my name is Michael Davis. And I'm the owner of Cartridge World Camp Creek. In Cartridge World, we're the world's largest remanufacturer of ink cartridges, up to 30% less than the national big box stores. There's 1,400 of us globally. So we've been around for about six or seven years. Now, the beauty of franchises, much like you said, is you've got a known brand entity, which you don't have to build over time. It's already there. You already have a support system from corporate in terms of marketing, operational, and other experience sets. But the other part you also have, which you alluded to a few moments ago, were business partners or other franchisers who are going through the exact same experience you are that perhaps have different experience sets than you, and really your business partners. So if you've got a situation like the pizza franchise you talked about, that's a business partner of yours, even if they're across town, because they're damaging your brand. You know, one wrong customer experience, they'll tell 10 people. One great customer experience, they might tell one person. So you really can't put a cost on that because in the franchise business, the cost of new customer acquisition is huge, but the damage control that you have to do from a bad experience from a franchise partner across town is priceless in a negative way. I'm a big advocate of franchisers because you have much of it already done. What you have to do as a franchiser within that structure where you have all that support and experience is figure out what is your unique brand going to be in your community. How are you going to differentiate yourselves in your 10-mile geographic area? Are you going to partner with schools? Are you going to partner with nonprofits and churches and do fundraising? How are you going to reach out to the BDD community as well as the local municipalities for business? So that's all you have to do as compared to being a non-franchiser when really you're on your own. You're on your own starting it, developing supplier relationship, marketing, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. And then when you have challenges, you don't, you can't go to a master franchise or other franchisers. How did you solve this problem? How did yeah. you get through this for a new business solution? 
So Michael, you mentioned something about the geographical area. There's a lot of franchises, obviously, and I've noticed here in San Diego, there will be maybe 10 different locations for one franchise, but they're all in different areas. I mean, are there other locations near you? Is there any any fear of competition or is it more of a camaraderie thing and you guys all try to work together? Well, each franchiser does it differently. I mean, generally from a physical location perspective, they generally have a geographic radius, five miles, 10 miles, et cetera, depending on geographical density where they want you to physically locate. And then some franchisers don't want you marketing certain places. In the case of our business, we have the location restriction because I don't have another franchise within 15 miles of me geographically, which is great because most people are not going to drive more than five to 10 miles anyway. So I don't have that challenge. But we also can market anywhere. I have customers that are everywhere from a delivery perspective because for a business, customers, we do free delivery. So I deliver wherever they come. And for that matter, I have customers even as far out in San Diego from the East Coast from me that we drop ship to. So I can work with anyone. So I don't have that restriction. To the real heart of your question from a franchiser instead of, of the entrepreneur. You're mentioning how this geographic location and a lot of these items are restricted in the actual franchise agreement. And that's something that is presented right up front. Definitely something oftentimes is reviewed by an attorney or maybe not. A lot of times you can just read it through yourself. And so long as you understand the terms, but sometimes these documents can be pretty lengthy. But Michael, why don't you talk about that? What what was the process like actually setting up and starting up this franchise? Everything from how you chose this particular franchise and financing it, and then also going through the process of that franchise agreement. Sure. I look at myself now after 20-some years in corporate life as being a corporate refugee. I left corporate, got my executive MBA, goes out of business school, and started working with startups and became an entrepreneur. And I looked for different business ideas. For a lot of the reasons I mentioned before, I chose a franchise. I started looking at food franchises, and I really quickly eliminated that because there's a whole lot of extra regulation, licensing, and the margins tend to be thinner because the food is fairly perishable. I came across the cartridge world, worked for HP. I was very familiar with the ink industry. The ink industry has huge margins, as we all know. It's one of the few products that is a consumable where you have to have it. It's the largest expense for really any business office supply. Everyone's a potential customer, but more importantly, all of us know that through the original equipment manufacturer buying stuff from the large manufacturers, we're already paying too much. So from a selling perspective, you've already got a pain point. We're coming in with an alternative that's a green, remanufactured one, same ink, highest quality, works just as well as what you might buy from an HP or another vendor, but we're coming in at 30% less. So I looked at this opportunity and said, ha, gosh, I'm dealing with something where everyone on the planet's a customer, something where there's already paying, people know they're paying too much, and my opening pitch is, are you interested in saving to 30% on your ink cartridges? And then also it's green, and that's becoming a larger and larger decision-making point for many people for purchases. So it's not a tough sell. Nine out of ten people are going to say, yes, I'm interested. And that tenth person, you say, well, let me know someone who you can refer me to who is interested in saving 30% of their ink purchases. So from that, I think I found a great opportunity that's growing. First, before you do anything, you need to get an attorney for any franchise type of play you're going to do. Cartridge World, like many of the other franchise operators through their websites, have a fairly generous amount of information about the process and the steps. But like anything, besides your internet research, the best intel you get are going into a couple different locations, seeing what the experience is, 
and then really talking to, having a cup of coffee with the owners and picking their brains. And they're the ones who are going to tell you what's real and separate that from the marketing hype and the propaganda you're going to get from a website or talking to someone in corporate or a master franchiser. What I also did was I also spoke with franchise brokers and really got an experience about are these franchises selling, if they're selling, why are they selling, and got really some of the financial ratios and some of the other internal stuff from franchise brokers. So I really knew beyond the business and financials I can get for corporate, what's really going on for the health of the franchise. Is it a franchise system that's growing? Is it a franchise system where you have lots of operators that are new? Is it static? Where are they going with their direction? And I kind of weave that with financial stuff on the Internet, other information about the industry, where the industry is going for other franchise stuff, and then articles in a lot of the entrepreneur small business magazines that every year rate franchises for how good are they and where they're going. And then what are your financing options? The financial industry right now is fairly cruel and capricious for those of us who are entrepreneurs who don't have perfect credit. So I went a different route with that using a company called Catchfire Funding to do all the administrative and governance work for leveraging what I had in my corporate 401k for all those years and forming a company and then using those monies to build a qualified retirement plan which shield you from taxes, and then really use that as the initial investment for the franchise fee to buy the equipment and really for the first six to nine months of operating income to start the business. And then basically they'll follow your returns for you and you maintain your retirement program by putting money back into it and growing the business. So I was really grateful that I came across that because what I've been able to do as a new business is really eliminate the service debt I have to pay 6% or 10% on borrowing that initial seed money and got that in my retirement income and you'll use that tax-free. You mentioned the franchise agreement. That is a heavily slanted document, of course, to the franchiser. And they are very long, very boring, and very tedious. And that's where you need your attorney to go through it. And a lot of times they're not negotiable. Exactly. Exactly. In Cartridge World, it's really very different. So you've got a small corporate entity, Cartridge World North America, and we have master franchisers that own the physical territory. And you enter into that franchise agreement with that franchisor. So in our case, we've got a great franchisor that has overspawned for Georgia and half of Tennessee. Our FDD is signed with him and his wife, and we work with them primarily, and then they have the relationship with corporate. And a lot of things you're saying aren't negotiable. How much money and royalties, that's not negotiable. How much of that royalty goes to the marketing fund, that's not negotiable. The look and feel of your establishment inside, that's not negotiable. We were also grateful that they had a real estate person because corporate leases are tricky. Finding that location that's right for your brand is tricky. So they have a great real estate guy that helped me find location based on what's worked in the past. And they also did the fun part of negotiating lease and all the verbals with commercial leases to get me in the right space. And that's the other advantage of the franchise network. You know, I mentioned the marketing, the operation support, also this logistical real estate support because with franchises, it's all about location. So I had a system from A to Z for all of that. And then the other thing I think is great, if I could add one more thing to answer your question, you know, they've got these huge repositories of intranets where you've got experiential best practice templates for anything you could think of from A to Z that have the combined network there that you can leverage and create your own brand while consistent with what the brand wants you to do as an individual franchise. Yeah, absolutely. And Michael mentions the support that a franchise can provide to you. I've seen franchises, they do lease negotiation, like you mentioned, provide legal support. 
training, of course, things like that. And that's definitely something to look out for before choosing your franchise if that's what you're looking into. Let's get to our question of the day. I I know we have a pretty decent one, I think. What do we have, Matt? How worried should I be about the arbitration clause in my employee agreement? And does this force me to only arbitration? This comes from someone in Santa Rosa, California. Yeah, we've talked about arbitration in the past. I can't remember if I've discussed this before, but I'm personally not a fan of arbitration in general, even for my businesses, except in the case when you're dealing with employees. One of the biggest advantage of arbitration is it's private. And a lot of times when you get in a dispute with your employee, things can get nasty sometimes and things that you may not want to be put out in the public, you can keep it private. But beyond that, arbitration, people think that it's uh, cheaper and faster. And it can be, but it's not necessarily true. And so I tend to shy away from that. I'm in the same boat. I mean, there are cases in California with employees being able to get around this in certain situations, but I like to have this in there as well for the employees if I was the employer, just because it is private and you can get it resolved hopefully in an easier fashion than the other route. But at the end of the day, you're still going to kind of run into the same issues, whether there's the arbitration clause or not, just that if an ex-employee wants to cause troubles for you, it's, it's going to happen either way. So I don't know if you can really get around that. I don't know if the arbitration clause is going to make it any easier for you if, if someone has their ideas and they just want to go for it. That's definitely true. Michael, from your business perspective, any experience with arbitration or any thoughts on the aspect of that? Fortunately, no. That's good. <laughs> Generally, if you're in arbitration, you've got problems. And the simple model that I used is I brought everyone in initially from a probationary perspective as 1099 contractors, consultants. Okay, yeah. And then from there, depending, you know, move people on to either W-2 or, frankly, for the role left in this contract employees. I mean, I think that 1099 structures offer both parties a lot of flexibility. Yeah, by its nature, yeah. And then what I've looked to do beyond that to really differentiate my brand is look to offer you know, supplemental insurance through one of those carriers to have a benefit. So beyond whatever I'm doing from an hourly rate or whatever I have for bonus based on the success of the franchise, also have some supplemental insurance, which most folks aren't giving to hourly employees to really differentiate that. Yeah, I think that's a good way to do it is obviously there's always going to be danger between classification between independent contractors and employees. But if you're able to do it right, putting them in an independent contractor status or 1099 status, if you will, is a good way to test out that employee or that potential employee, I should say. And then when you've had that relationship with them, then you'll feel comfortable bringing them on that employee status, which of course has a little bit more risk, but allows you to have more control over those personnel. Michael, you know, before we let you go, I don't know if you want to end us on a good note with some contact information for people to contact you if they have questions or a little bit more about Cartridge World. And I'll let you end with that. And we'll also post links accordingly on our show notes. Sure, I'd love to. My store name is Cartridge World Camp Creek. We're located in Atlanta, Georgia, WATLINCREFILL.com. And my email is EWCW as in Cartridge World. 050 at com. Our Facebook handle is ATL Inc. Refill, as is our YouTube channel and things of that nature. But if anyone wants to contact me in terms of looking to make that franchise decision or really anything from a small business entrepreneurial perspective, I've done several startups, more than happy to make myself available. And if you want to call by phone, the number at the store is 404-629-5200. So the other thing I'll tell you really quick, without I've got 20 seconds, 
what I've learned about the economy right now, people want to do business with small business. And they also want to do business with small business that really makes an impact with the community. And if you can value, add what you do where you do more than one thing to them well, they'd rather make one stop. So I've expanded my store beyond printer cartridges to do many other things from notary to copy to fax to repair work so they can come to me with one-stop shopping. And I also connect small businesses together to make, because I'm a community business and I invest in the nonprofits. I think that's what makes your brand important and that's why people will come back. Absolutely. Well, thank you for that. That's very generous to give your contact information. We won't post your email out there. Otherwise, you'll probably be spammed to death on the show notes. But we will definitely uh, post a link to your website. And thank you so much for joining the program. And I appreciate your insight on all the franchise world, as I call it. Thank you for the opportunity. All right. That's our show. And thank you for joining us. Keep it sound and keep it smart. This has been the Legally Sound Smart Business Show with your hosts, Nasser Pasha and Matt Staub. The Legally Sound Smart Business Show is your weekly look at legal news and questions in the business world. Legally Sound Smart Business is a podcast that is intended but not promised or guaranteed to be current, complete, or up-to-date, and should in no way be taken as an indication of future results. No attorney-client relationship is created by listening or submitting questions to the podcast. The podcast does not constitute legal advice, but rather is offered only for general informational and educational purposes. You should not act or rely on any information in the podcast without first seeking the advice of an attorney. The opinions expressed in the podcast reflect the views of those individuals and do not necessarily represent the views of any other individual or business. For more information about the Legally Sound Smart Business Show, visit LegallySoundSmartBusiness.com.